Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome. Welcome back to all our listeners. Uh, this is Orville Roach, along with my producer and co-host, as usual, pulling double duty, Chris Morales. Our number is 646-564-9909. 646-564-9909 is the number. If you want to call in to speak to us or our guests, if you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our website, ocgworks.org, that's O-C-G-W-O-R-K-S.org, and click on the OCG Radio Live button, or you can also go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. You don't have to call in on the call-in line to listen to the show, unless that's your only means. Okay, Mr. Producer, before we get started, there's... Uh, this is a show about recovery, but there's just one thing I wanted to just throw out there real quick. How about them Cowboys? Yeah! <laughs> of course. Of course. Tony Tony Romo looking un-Tony Romo-esque this time of year, I'll say. That is a, quite, quite a game he had. Now, I know I'm going to have to explain that to my uh, New York brethren, uh, who are probably <laughs> going to hold me in contempt, but I'll I'll explain that to them off air. Um, Absolutely. But... So we're we're doing Daytop, the birth and evolution. Today is part two of three. Uh, we have a special guest today, um, Charles J. Devlin, uh, who we know as Charlie Devlin, um, who's a former CEO of Daytop Village Inc. Um, and he will talk to us about um, a different phase. Uh, we had uh, Dr. David Deitch on last week, where we covered the uh, the birth and the infancy period. Um, so let's get right to it, and let's uh, welcome aboard Charlie Devlin. Charlie, welcome to our show, and uh, good to hear from you again. Good to talk to you, Orville, and it's good to be on your on your show. Looking forward to it. Uh, good. And uh, I'm glad you had my old buddy David Deitch on previously, and and I know he gave you good information. He he sure did. Um, he he taught us some things that we didn't know. 
Um, I hope I fill in some of the blanks. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, now, w- one of the things you you definitely uh, straightened out for at least during my time and the time of my peers and everybody that was uh, with us during that uh, late '80s, early '90s period, um, we we knew of you, we saw you, um, uh, we knew what your role was. Um, but I, I would bet every single person would have sworn that you went through Swan Lake. Uh, come to find out that uh, you didn't. You went. You actually went through the lodge or, or Princess Bay. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. How, how did you end up there? Well, I mean, uh, probably a little known fact uh, is that uh, Daytop Lodge, uh, which was a uh, program that was really founded by the uh, Brooklyn uh, Brooklyn Second Judicial District in New York City uh, started this program called Daytop Lodge with a grant from the National Institute on Mental Health for like three hundred ninety thousand dollars for twenty five male probationers uh, for a five year period, uh, and that program started in September sixteenth, nineteen sixty three, and I just so happened to be the very first resident selected to go to that program, so. Uh, I wound up uh, going there by, by uh, uh, it's, 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 you could only go there if you committed a crime. You went through the courts, uh, and, and the, the probation officer, Joe Shelley, uh, and, and Alex Basson, two of the founders of that Daytop Lodge program, uh, interviewed me and selected, thought I'd be a good candidate. Uh, and I... Uh, was interviewed by them, and they sent me out to, to Staten Island, Cottonville, Staten Island. And at that time, uh, I was really not ready to 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 to, to get help. Uh, I didn't mm-hmm. think in my day he was once an addict, always an addict, and I never thought there was any kind of help available. But I mm-hmm. said I'd, I'd spend time in this place than being in jail, so I selected that, and I went out, and, and, and I told them I'll go, and I went out there and met the first director, whose name was Dean Colcourt, uh, who welcomed me when, when I arrived, and I told him, it's very nice to meet you, uh, but I have an appointment that I need to keep in back in the city, because I thought I'd be getting high again, and I'll mm-hmm. come back the following day. And he said, nope, I don't think you can do that. You've got to come and stay here. And I wound up staying in Daytop Lodge. Uh, and about two, three weeks later, another, some other guys came in. Slowly but surely, we had about 22 people. Uh, Dr. Dan Casual, who was one of the co-founders of Daytop, uh, was the chief psychiatric superintendent, and he, and, and, he, and he would hold groups. By the way, Daytop, Daytop was really modeled after a program in the West Coast in California, which was sitting on. And right. They, they they viewed it and they, they liked what they saw. They, they it was modeled as a peer support uh, organization uh, where 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 people that were in, in recovery or trying to be in recovery would help each other, and and it was a very successful model, and and so the probation department modeled it after that. The problem was, uh, Daytop Lodge was only for those people that were male probationists that came from certain boroughs of New York, most of us knew each other. So it was mm-hmm. very difficult 
for us to really be honest about our problems. When first of all, we thought we'd be going, we'd be going back and, and relapsing and going back to the streets together. So right. it really wasn't a very successful, good model. It was also for one year, and, and so I stayed there and I became the, not only the first resident. Uh, in September of 1964, I was graduated as the first graduate, which was very nice. But I relapsed soon after that. And, and 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 had a re-enter back in June of 1965. So the, the lodge was the real foundation uh, of Daytop, uh, and, and I'm very proud of being a part of that, even though it didn't work, but we learned by our mistakes. Uh, I then came back in, in 1965 when David Deitch again came in to, to help clean up this, this place that was that was not in the best of shape, Clinically, uh, since most of the most of the people that were there were also uh, misbehaving and, and chipping and getting high and drinking and stuff like that, and so David mm-hmm. uh, came in and, and cleaned it up, and, and then he cut. Then I uh, relapsed in 1965. I contacted uh, David. I called him up. Didn't know who, never knew who he was, but my probation officer, this fellow Ed Hammock, was also became a, became executive director. Daytop a little later on, and Amick said, you have to go back to Daytop. I said, I loved the place. It was really a lovely, lovely facility, but it didn't work. I said, so what, why would I want to go back? He says, you have to go back, otherwise you're going to get violated with your probation. So I called up David Deitch, and David said, oh, he knew he knew of me, and he said, get be here in two hours. He didn't give me much time to, to, to think. Uh, but I wound up going there and, 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 and uh, was interviewed. Uh, I was high. They made me wait a number of hours until I was sober and interviewed me. And, and at that time, that interview, sitting there with a lot of these people I knew that were, that were in Daytop that I left, they were very different. And the interview was, was, was such an intense interview that I felt these people, I was a sheet of glass, and they were able to look right through me, and, 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 and they knew me. Uh, and, and, and I cried like a baby in that interview, and, and, I, and I knew that this was different than what it was when I was there the first time. Right. And it was, it was a, a very spiritual experience, uh, and, and I was extremely honest, and, and, and even though the next day I woke up, I was addicted I mean, I was addicted, and I and, and I was starting to kick, you know, go cold turkey. They said, "I guess you're not going to stay because there was no, you know, detoxification in those days. You had cold turkey, and right. I'm not going to go anyplace. I'm staying, and you know, this is this where I'm going to be." Uh, and I stayed, and 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 it was it was the most wonderful experience of my life that uh, that that treatment program, and, and and in those early days, it was pure positive peer support. Uh, and and we, we 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 really were very harsh with each other, very demanding with each other. That we would that we would help each other, and it, and you felt the love of, of of in those early days. By the way, we had no money. Daytop Lodge had some funding, and that still was around a little bit. But when, when we when I was there, we, we we incorporated it, and we called it Daytop Village. Well, Daytop Village had no funding. We had to go out. Uh, and, 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 and and see if we can get bring food home to feed the family. Uh, we would go to downtown downtown uh, the little in the meat market 
and and the fruit uh, facilities to see if we can get people to donate to us, to give to us, to bring home food for the family. And we did that. Did that until we, for at least a year, until we got some some kind of financial support from the government. Uh, but that was, again, a very, very important time of my life and a very, very important time in Daytop's life because it created the foundation of what was going to eventually be a very good growing organization. So mm-hmm. that was my initial entry in, into Daytop, being being the first resident, being the first graduate, and, and being the first failure because I was one of the first one of the last <laughs> coming back and. Uh, and it, and it showed, and it just showed, and the example of that you can, you know, you can relapse, and 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 you can, and we've had people that relapsed a number of times, and they continued on, and it became very successful. The trifecta. <laughs> yeah, that's. So that awesome. was my. So I, well, I really grew up in Staten Island. I was. Don't get me wrong. I was. I was very involved in 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 in, in Swan Lake, but never so much as a resident. You know, we had we had. Uh, we used to have our yearly retreats, and we called them Gordensias every year, our birthday. We were, The first one we had in Staten Island, but after that, we got so big, we would have to have them in Swan Lake all the time. And, and when, you should know did... that when we opened up Swan Lake, it was it was June of 1966. And uh, it was okay. formerly, a, formerly a, a, a hotel. It was called Paul's Hotel. It was a kosher hotel, and and uh, but it wasn't winterized. It was a summer resort. So what we had to do, we sent a team of our of our residents up that had some that, some some experience in, in 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 construction and and were able to go up there in June and had to literally put in pipes to winterize the place. So they had to, they had to put pipes in the ground before before the winter, so that we would have, we would heat the place so people could live up there, and 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 they did that. And we brought in no outside help. It was all done by our by our own residents and and, and staff uh, to make that a winterized facility, and then it became you know Swan Lake became a mag- magnificent facility. Thousands of people went through and got help and were were treated there. So, so my so Charlie, my history was that now, but I did go up there at the time to do to do you know support and do some some assistance. Charlie, I have a question for you. Uh, you know, being a being a graduate of Daytop myself and not having graduated until the 2000s, I hear a lot of stories about people from the past, past graduates and things of that nature. And to learn that you were the first graduate ever from a program that I went through is pretty awesome. I mean, I feel pretty privileged to even be having this conversation with you right now. So I wanted to ask if you wouldn't mind to elaborate a little bit on what it means to you personally to be the first graduate from Daytop. Well, I'm very proud of that. I mean, it was it was, it was an experience. You know, I have a very strong history with Daytop. You know, I I, I like to say I grew up there. Uh, all my friends and 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 my and and I considered my family uh, was my Daytop my Daytop family. Uh, and and it was to me, uh, and it was a premier organization. I'm very proud of the fact not only that I. That I was the first resident, first graduate. Uh, I was also the first, the first executive director that was that, that came through the program. Uh, these were very meaningful to me, and, and and meaningful in the sense that that I was a part of building something that I, that I was very proud of, that that I loved, 
and, 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 and was able to help people like me. You know, I stayed there in many respects. I stayed there because I, I felt I had to give back. Not only did it, did it help keep me, keep me sober, but it was, it, was, it was sort of a calling that I felt I, I, I had to give back to other people because my attitude was if it could help me, it can help anybody. It, I didn't right. Myself. Uh, so it, it, it was a very proud accomplishment. But, but even though you should know, my real, I consider, I don't even consider that first graduate of, of, of Daytop Lodge, that, that I, don't, I don't even consider that my graduation date. You know, I really huh. consider the graduation date uh, is when we when we really had our our first day top graduation, and we didn't. By the way, we didn't even call it graduation. In our day, when we gave out the, the pin, the day top pin that we they still give out today, uh, that was a confirmation. That that was the term we used. We were going to we were being confirmed, uh, <laughs> and we didn't use the term graduation until later on. And, and, and we had our first graduation, uh, which was in August of 1967, up at Swan Lake, uh, where we issued the pins. And there was about a dozen of us that received it. That is what I always considered my graduation date, my date, uh, because because I was purely, I was I was really clean. I was I didn't have any relapses, and I had I had a good 18 months quote under my belt, where where where, where I did nothing but positive growth. Uh, the first time was I had it, but it was not 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 my proudest achievement. Wow, that's really incredible! Thank you so much for sharing that with me. So, Charlie, uh, this is Orville again. Um, <clears throat> you ended up like you like you noted, working uh, for the organization and eventually uh, rising to executive uh, leadership, and eventually becoming the CEO. Uh, could you walk us through your journey to that CEO's Uh-oh. chair? Yes, it was an interesting experience. I had, you know, you should also know, you know, before I went to Daytop in, in my other life, I, I worked in construction and I and I, I was a cement finisher, and and I worked on many large New York City skyscrapers. Uh, probably the last the last big job that I worked on in construction was my was 50 years ago. They're just celebrating the anniversary this year of the Barrazano Bridge. That was my last my last job. Uh, and, and so I had a very good You're responsible and, and for I that $10 doing that. Uh, but when I went through Daytop, I had a choice. When the time came, and, and I said, do I, do I go back to construction, which is a skill and a union I belong to, or I'd stay in Daytop? You know, and, and I made very good money in construction. I made nothing in Daytop. <laughs> you know, we had no money in those days. But, but right. my commitment. Was to, to stay with Daytop because I felt that was my calling and I wanted to get back and it would and it would assure me of my uh, of my own in my own recovery. Uh, so I stayed I stayed in Daytop and and and, and it, as I said in February I mean in the, when I graduated uh, in 1967 I was immediately uh, stayed on as a counselor and I became a a counselor in Daytop. In Staten Island, I always seemed to work at Staten Island. That was my that was where I stayed, uh, and I worked my way up to be a senior a senior coordinator. Uh, and 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 then toward the end of '67, uh, I became I became a, the, the direct, a co-director. It was really in those days we just did co-directors. So I was a co-director with this guy Felix Barella, good guy, who eventually left Daytop and, and started a program and opened it. 
founded a program in Westchester called Renaissance. And uh, I did that, and, and, and we then had, we then had uh, some differences. While I was as the director of Staten Island, uh, I don't know if David got into that, but there were some problems between, between Ford uh, and, and, and David and the staff in regard to accountability uh, and in regard to some complaints that were made about Daytop getting more involved in some political in the political arena. These are the days way of Vietnam and protesting and and uh, uh, that became that, that started to confuse things. Well, at the time, I, I didn't like what was going on. I I, I really even though I was part of what they called the core group in Daytop, and I was part of it, I didn't like what I was seeing. I didn't like, I said, we're here to treat people. I don't think if we have political aspirations, I think it's our position to, to, to pass that on to the, to the residents. Uh, and so I didn't like what was happening. I was going to leave Daytop. I was going to go back to construction. I, I just recently got married uh, to my wife, Whitney, who's uh, I'm still married to after these... Forty-six years, and wonderful. And so I said, "Let me." You know, I was going to leave. Uh, I talked to this guy Ronnie Brancato, who was also uh, one of the core group members, and he says, "Don't leave, Charlie. Let's confront. Let's confront the group about what we didn't like. Don't leave. Just so." So we had a group. We had a, we had you know we had our usual encounter groups, uh, and and in that group, uh, the, the, the 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 members weren't too happy about this competition, and. Uh, then Monsignor O'Brien contacted me. Uh, he was at, he was the chair of the board. He was not he was not involved much, and he had the quarterly board meetings. And he said, you know, we're, we're, we're not happy with what's happening, and we're gonna we're gonna uh, make some changes. Stay with it, because it turns out when I confronted David and the and, and the core group, I got a certified letter from David firing me for my being the director of Staten Island. <laughs> and so I. Uh, but I stayed on with 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 Dan Casual and the board, and then finally, uh, uh, about a month or so later on, they went to court, and 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 the board the board took over, and and David left. David left with a lot of the residents, a lot of the staff. It was very traumatic in those days, even though it was very harsh. When I, when you look back at history. One of the best things that probably could have happened to the field is that split, because from that split, people that from Daytop started programs all around the country. It was like mm-hmm. it was like a, a a seed planted in the ground from the tree that the Daytop tree, and 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 the programs opened in the marathon program in, in Massachusetts, uh, Gordensia in, in, in Pennsylvania, uh, Gateway House in in, in, in Illinois. Uh, the Walden House in California, Village South in, in 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 Florida. These were just some of the programs that started from people that had left Daytop through what we called the split. So it was a good good thing for the field. But uh, the wind up is uh, I had to then start to try to rebuild this place from scratch all over again because we had empty buildings. Swan Lake was empty. Uh, 14th Street was a facility we had, a reentry program in Manhattan was empty, uh, Parksville was empty, and and because the res- a lot of the residents, some stayed, a lot of them left, and they went to other programs. 
but I, but from that point on, I became the program director. I'm, I'm leading to that, you know. So what? So when I stayed on, I, you know, I had to take on more responsibilities. So I became the program director. Uh, I had the director of the senior director of 14th Street, uh, and 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 then, you know, start started to happen. You know, and it and it's all part of the evolution and 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 how we grew. But we had. Uh, Started as a treatment program for adult adult men and women. Uh, that was a long-term residential program that was anywhere from 18 months to 24 months. We had three basic stages in the treatment program: you know, the admissions, the primary treatment, and reentry. Uh, then we started to see other things. You know, we saw we saw people that would come to us that didn't need residential treatment. We said, wait a minute, they don't need residential treatment. You know, what do we do? So we started, we opened up outreach centers that would, that, would, that would work with the community and work with people in the community where they didn't have to go into a reentry program, I mean, to a residential program, and we also used those outreach centers as part of our reentry program. So people that would leave the residential program would go to the outreach centers for, for, for aftercare. Right. So that, so that began as part of the evolution. And, and then... We also saw that we had young people coming into the program. We said, wait a minute here. You know, we have these, these young, they don't fit. These are, these are 16, 17-year-old boys and girls that don't belong with these mid-20, 30-year-old uh, adults. So we created an adolescent treatment program for them. And this, by the way, in doing this, and we did a lot of innovative programs, but it was all having to do with being aware of the population that was coming into the doors and being open enough to say we need to modify or make changes for this population. That was one of the jewels that Daytop had. It was always, you know, because we were always in touch with, with, with the population, with the clients. Mm-hmm. And we said, what they are, we heard what they said, this is what you need, and this is what we're going to have to give you. It was, not, it was never such a strict regime that they had to do it our way. We had to modify that, and so we did that. Uh, and, and I must tell you, so we did some, you know, some. I always considered groundbreaking kinds of things. You know, we, you know, we we had the first the first college program in 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 in, 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 in all of the programs. We called it the Daytop University, where where people not only were getting their high school diplomas, but able. We had Brooklyn College come in with college professors, and people were able to get college credits while in Daytop, and so. That, that was innovative, you know. We had we had another thing that we we had a, a training institute that we created. Uh, uh, we did we in those days we did a film with with, with Don Frank from the can, can, with the Canadian Film Board. Um, that was a fantastic film, and, and you know we created a family association. The other thing was most people they felt all oh, the families they, they interfere, they get in the way. We said, wait a minute, no. They can be very helpful. They, they, you know, because if we, we get them involved and they can help themselves, and we had our own family groups and family association where, where once the parents got involved, it helped our own retention because the, the, the residents that were in the program said, hey, you know, my parents are involved. I'm going to stay involved because the parents would make demands when a, when a, when a child wants to leave. They would say, oh, no, you got to stay. We're not, you can't come home. You know, these were all good, innovative kinds of things that we did. 
and, and, and the, what we did with breaking with the Sidonon model, which was the model that, that we modeled ourselves after, they, were, they, had no, they had no board of directors. We felt you had to have a good, responsible board of directors. You need a check and balance. You need, need accountability. So we had a good board of directors. And Monsignor stayed on at the chairman of the board until, until he came on, his staff in the, in, in the 70s he came on. Uh, Ed Hammack, who was the executive director, had a, had a leave to go on uh, the Attica Commission, Attica Commission when they were uh, when they had riots in Attica. He was a lawyer, and they, they wanted to do that. So I'm rambling, but I'm just trying to tell you how all these kinds of no, exciting no. things were taking place in the early stages of Daytop that actually right. began to grow and, 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 and become their own little, their, you know, their own institutions. So you, um, and, and we don't, we don't mind you rambling. This is all good. This is all good stuff that we're, that we're learning about uh, that, that, that period of time. And you even touched on my, my next question about that period of when this for David, by the way, David David was very forthcoming on the split, and you kind of added a little bit more to it. Yeah, I just, was uh, a, it was, a, well, it's a part of our history. Oh, you know, it was yeah, our history. Yeah. And, uh, and we didn't talk for years, you know. David and I were very close. In the early days, when we had the split, uh, we didn't talk for a while, but you know, slowly but surely, we brought him back, and he got back involved working with Daytop, became a vice president. We did a lot of good stuff together. I'm still very close to David. We do a lot together today, uh, you know. So we have a good relationship. But that was that was part of it. And then you know, and, he, and 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 by the way, I must tell you, the guy with the foundation, creating the foundation of Daytop, they, David created that foundation. Did a wonderful job. You know, we just had to continue it after him. That's all. Right. And I'll tell you something else. It's also you know, when I was. When I was there, and 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 I always felt uh, it was always important to me that you surround yourself with good staff, and and we had very good, dedicated staff. We were fortunate, and maybe you know one of the things wasn't we, most of, most of most of my assistants, most of the, you know what we call administrators or equivalent to vice presidents, they were they were homegrown. These were people that had gone through the program. They, some came back. They went out. One of them was a graduate, went out to be a lawyer. I brought her back to, 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 to head up our adolescent program. But we had wonderful, wonderful staff. And we met on a monthly basis, and each reported out in their areas, whoever, some, whoever oversaw the reentry program, the residential program, the short-term program, the adolescent program, the specialty sessions, the medical program. We would meet regularly and look at our organization and, and, and where we needed to go and how we can help people in the best way. And we had a great staff that did that. And all of, and I've always said, you know, it's a team approach. And it was the team that created all of our, in a, all of our innovative programs and, and all of our expansions. So that was, that was very important that we, that we did that. And I, and I was very pleased in many respects, that Monsignor O'Brien, who was the president at the time, would let me do that. He gave me full reins to, 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 to run the operation, the clinical operation. 
that I would like to think was a was a first class premier organization. People from all over the world and all over the country would come to us to to learn to, to be part right. of our be part of our program to, to, so they could bring it bring it back to the, to them to to, to to wherever state or, or or country or somewhere from from New York. Remember, a lot of these programs in New York that were they came to us. We started those programs, the Phoenix House, Odyssey House. They came to us when they when they wanted to start uh, Samaritan Village. These were programs that we gave staff to to help them create their own programs, and they and they all did very well with their with, with their with their uh, using our model. Right. You want to take a call, Charlie? Excuse me. You want to take a call? We got a call for you. Okay. Sure. Let's bring on uh, Ira, calling from looks like New York. Ira, welcome to Roadshow Recovery. Hey. You're on with Charlie Devlin. Hey, Charlie, good speaking to you, good listening to you. Um, actually, uh, just actually left you. Great hearing you. Uh, I am a 1980 graduate, uh, and I worked for the agency up until 2009 as a consultant. <clears throat> but great listening to your story and listening to you. Always, Charlie, great stories. Okay, Ira, I love you too, my man. Okay. Um, thank you for that, Ira. Um, Charlie, you were touching on it a little bit. Um, I'll, I'll let you expound on it a little bit more about as the organization was going through the uh, the 70s and the 80s, it was really expanding. What were some of the, you know, discussions and decisions that kind of played into we, we need to get bigger? Well, it wasn't so much it wasn't so much that we need to get bigger. We never had that discussion. We need to get bigger. The discussion was, what do we do with these people that are coming to us for help? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because that was the case. You know, we had to get bigger to accommodate the needs that were of the people that came to us. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we had we had you know Princess Bay in Staten Island that we opened in 1965 was a hundred bed facility for men and women. Well, that was that was filled up. Once we went from Baked Up Lodge to open it to the community, that was filled up in less than a year. Then that's why we had to open up Swan Lake in 1966. Swan Lake was a 250-bed facility. We had that filled up in a, in, 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 within a year or so. We then opened up the Outreach Center. We, had, we opened up one in Mount Vernon in Westchester. Then, you know... The, the need. We also then went to went to Brooklyn. We did an outreach center of Brooklyn. Uh, in, in, in 1959, we had the, we had 14th Street. That was uh, that was a reentry program that we opened up. Uh, Millbrook was an adolescent program in 1970. These programs opened up because of the need of the people that came to us. And 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 and, and Parksville, we opened up in 1972. Another 200 bed facility. All of these facilities, in a, in a year or two, were full to to, to, to capacity. We opened up, a, 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 so in each borough, Staten Island was opened up in 1973, the Bronx in 1982, you know, Westchester in 1983, Far Rockaway, a major 300-bed facility in 1984. They all were opened because of the, the people from the community or the and in those days 
very big referral source was the criminal justice system because they really were looking for an alternative to incarceration, and they were, they were looking for a, 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 some kind of an organization that would, that, that, that would take care of these people and, 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 and also be accountable to them on how well they're doing. Uh, right. So we had a very good relationship with the criminal justice system. Then, you know, we, we opened up our Promethean Institute in 1987, which was a fantastic find. You know, it just so happened to be a, by an accident. I was just happened to walk on 40th, uh, working on 40th Street to go to our, our headquarters there, between 56th Avenue. And this gentleman come over and says, so, you know, what about the, what is this place you have here? And I talked to him. I brought him in. We talked a while. And, and, and it turns that this guy's name was, was John Wackenfeld. Well, they were, they, he was the president of the Hayden Foundation who owned the property down in, 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 in the Poconos that, was, that, we, that, that he said, listen, I like what you guys do. You, uh, I'll let you use our 2,000-acre land with these beautiful facilities on them uh, for a dollar a year. It was fantastic. Just happened was luck, and that and that facility we used for years to help train our staff and bring staff from all over the the country and the world to, to, to for that training institute. So, but these all happened because of needs, because of people that came <clears throat> to us. We were just fortunate enough to have a good staff that were open, dedicated. And by the way, we also did this. We didn't wait. So we got, we got funding from the state. We did it because because the need was there, and then we went to the state, and we said to the state, hey, we have to open up this facility because the needs are there, and you've got to help us with that financial support. And they, by the way, the New York State Substance Abuse Agency was very helpful, and they always backed us and supported us because we were accountable. We were accountable and, and, and made them look good. So we, we had a very excellent relationship with that with that state agency. Uh, then we, you know, as you know, Orva, we also expanded. We had, you know, we had a request in, in, in Texas, in, 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 in the Dallas area, uh, to open up a program there. And so we, 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 we expanded outside of New York, and we went to Dallas. And, and then, we had, then we had Redwood City. That we, the was there to, for, for working with adolescents. We did that. We did it in Florida. You know, we opened up a number of facilities because of the request from the states to, to help them in, in those areas. Now, you um, the, the you mentioned the Monsignor some time back. Uh, he played a significant role in starting the, uh, the World Federation of Therapeutic Communities, the WFTC, and he served as president for some time. But you also spent considerable time as president of that organization. So why was this organization so important to Daytop? That's a good question. That's very interesting. Of the, the the World Federation, and let me let me give you a little bit of history on that one too. How that evolved. That's another one. How these things happen. It's very interesting. You know, we had we had uh, we belonged. Daytop was a member of of an organization called ICAA. Uh, ICAA stood for the International Council on Alcohol and Addictions. They were located in Lucerne, Switzerland. Well, they had a conference they were going to hold in 1975 in Bangkok, Thailand. And my senior said, you know, Charlie, 
we belong to this organization, and 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 uh, they would like to have a presentation uh, or, or from Daytop, you know, for us to do something. So I said, okay, I'll, you know, it's with your mind going, writing a paper and delivering a paper at this conference, uh, and and so I said, fine, and I and I and I went to this conference. And, and 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 delivered a paper. Matter of fact, it's, it was an interesting one because that was it was called Daytop Village: A Longitudinal Review, 1963 to 1974, mm-hmm. uh, and that was their 31st International Congress. Well, it, when I went to this Congress and went to this workshop, I just happened to meet a few other folks that also had that had treatment programs that called themselves therapeutic communities. Uh, this guy, Bob Garan, who was a Catholic priest in Manila, the Philippines, had a program called the DARE program. He said, you know, Charlie, he says, you don't know this, but this guy, Anthony, came to Daytop and he, 14th Street, and he, you know, you helped him, and he was a Filipino. He came back to Manila and, and helped us start this program. Then this other guy, Lars Bremberg, a Swedish guy, Says, you know, we have a program that we, it's, it's called the Vormal Talk program. We call it a therapeutic community, but it's really based on the, on, under, uh, under uh, uh, the European model, which was under Maxwell Jones, a different kind of a professional kind of a model, but still a self-help program. So these people were all in this session, and, 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 and my brother John, who was also a Daytop graduate, uh, who left Daytop, went up and started a program in, in Montreal, Canada, a bilingual program called Portage that we, Daytop, sanctioned and sent him up there to do that. Well, we also had a, a Swedish, I mean, a, a French guy, this guy, Christian Brolet from France, uh, a guy from Great Britain, Frank Wilson, and, and, and this guy, Tom Bratta from the United States. Well, we said we got together with seven. They call it the Band of Seven. The seven of us got together. We said, you know something? Here we're at a conference with three, 4,000 people. You know, that most of them are doctors, criminal justice folks, but we're the only ones who actually are into the self-help, positive peer support, therapeutic community model. So we then went to, to, the, to, the, to the president, Eva Tong, and we met with her at the conference, and we said, you know, we really would like some space, maybe a section, because you had special sections of ICA. Maybe you could create a TC section of ICAA, and 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 we can win. And, and we and we said propose. He said, you know, Monsignor Brian, the president of Daytop, is also a member. He could be the president of this of this section of ICAA section. They said, fine, great. And and what we also wanted, what we wanted to do. And we saw that. We said we really need to communicate with each other. We need to publish and, 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 and create some vehicle where we can share our, our findings. And my brother John said, well, I have a publication. It's a bilingual publication uh, from Portage uh, called The Addiction Therapist. You can, we can publish in that. So we said, great. We also said we also want to have a conference. We should bring people from around the world that are, that are and, and, and that are based on the TC model and have those people come to this conference. So this guy Lars Bremberg said, "This and I'll, I'll host the first conference in 19 a year from now in 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 in, in Vormaltorp, Sweden." And went back and went back to O'Brien, told him all of his plans. I said, "You should be the president because you're the natural to be the president of ICAA section," which he right. did. 
and a few years later, we had a few conferences, uh, and 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 we, you know, if if after the after the conference in um, in in uh, in Sweden, uh, I think we went to we went to to, to Canada, uh, then we went to Rome, and and what happened is people that wanted to start a therapeutic community that didn't have anything in countries. In Italy, they had nothing in Italy. Uh, this, this Catholic priest, Mario Picchi, said, you know, I really love what you guys are doing. I'd like to do something like that in Italy. So we said, really fine, we'll, we'll have you come to, to Daytop. We'll trade some of your stuff, some of your staff. We'll send some people back. And they started these, these programs all throughout Italy. That was all headed up by the Daytop staff and, and people that we sent there to, to train them. The same thing we did in Sweden. But the wind-up is that but this just evolved. It was nothing that we planned on doing. It's something that just happened because the need was there. They loved, right. they loved the therapeutic community model in these countries. They wanted to start them uh, and, 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 and start these programs. So that's how it evolved. Now, and Brown Senior uh, became the – it was in the, the conference, I think the fourth or fifth conference that was held in Greece that we finally incorporated – from, from when we left ICAA, we had a break with them because we, we, we didn't want to be a section anymore. We wanted to have our own corporation, and that's when we incorporated as the World Federation of Therapeutic Communities. Uh, and and, and O'Brien was the first president of that and stayed on as president for a number of years. He was going to he was going to turn it over to Lars Bremberg from Sweden, but there were some problems that Lars had in Sweden. He couldn't he couldn't take it over. So Monsignor basically did that. I I sort of was the was the chairman of the of the of the of the what they call the IOC International Organizing Committee, which really organized the conference. So I just found I had a talent for that, <laughs> you know, in organizing. So I was the one in charge of organizing all of these conferences, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, then I eventually became the deputy president of. of World Federation, but we had to. We then we then went to we went to to, to Canada. To, then we went to Italy. The fourth World Conference was in is in New York. We went to the the, the fifth was in the Netherlands. Uh, the sixth was no matter of fact it was the, in the Netherlands in 1980. We incorporated the World Federation of Therapeutic Communities, and the wind up is we wound up having uh, 24. 24 World Conferences. Uh, the last one that I was involved with was the one that we had in New York in 2006. That's the year I, that's the same year I left ATOP. I left a few months after the conference, and uh, which was very successful. But out of that, you know, we had we created Daytop International because of the need and 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 programs and and there were people to go to, 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 to Daytop to learn. And, and to start to learn how to open up a TC so they can go back to their countries. So we had people from Asia, tremendous group from Asia, that came mm-hmm. from, from from Thailand and Malaysia and and Laos and Cambodia that wanted to open up their communities. Same thing with Latin America. And as and as the World Federation evolved. Out of that came European Federation, the Latin American Federation, various federations. 
and the therapeutic community movement. And by the way, that's what it was all about. It was really about being a movement. It was not about right. us gaining anything. It was that we we had the foresight to see that people around the world had the same problems and they needed the same help. And the therapeutic community can be incorporated all around the world because it's modeled it. It's very simple, self-help, positive peer support model that people in treatment can help themselves. So it was it just had, it just evolved and and, and it became and it's, I just came back, matter of fact, from the the last World Federation conference that was in Cancun, Mexico, and I was there with the with this organization I'm currently working with, which is Help PSI. That made a very good presentation and, and really specialized in, in healthcare uh, delivery and, and, and primary care services, especially specializing in people that have HIV, AIDS, and substance abuse. Right. But but it's something that we evolved. It just happened. And O'Brien was a magnificent leader because 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 he supported it. He let you know he let it. He let he, and 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 he created all kinds of committees. And 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 it just became it just became a, it, its own its own institution. So so Charlie, you you've had a forty year plus affiliation with Daytop. If yep. you look back, if you look back, uh, is there anything you would have done dif- differently in your capacity, or anything you'd have liked to see happen? I think there was a the number treatment? of things I would have done differently, but probably the most important of them. When I look back, and so I'm still very much I left Daytop in two thousand and six. But I've been staying, I'm still very much involved in the field, mm-hmm. and I'm very active as a volunteer, and I'm very big in the recovery movement. And, and, and when I look back, I didn't see it as much then, but I see it so much more now. As, as what's happening now and, and how the regulators, the funding agents, how they've literally taken the heart and the soul out of, quote, the therapeutic community because of their regulations – so if I had it all to do over again, the goal would have been to be more self-sufficient, to be, mm-hmm. to be less dependent on, on, on the government dollar. Uh, not that, not that you're kidding, you know, because I think we, if we really used our imaginations, because once you take the dollar from the government, the government's going to tell you how to treat people, and right. you've got to be right. careful to, to do it their way. That's what happens. And so if I had it all to do over again, and I set a whole new program. I would be more self-sufficient, and I wouldn't rely on government dollars. Well, Charlie, uh, this has definitely been uh, very, very informative. Um, we appreciate you uh, being willing to come on and share your uh, daytop experience with us. And um, I hope, if, uh, if if needed, sometime in the future, you'll be uh, willing to come back on. Anytime. I'm always available. You know, especially sharing sharing the, the life of Daytop. It's very important. You know, because uh, one of the things I'm thinking about is, is you know, we have a, we've got to really work on the history. I've been working with this woman from from Emory University. She's doing a Ph.D., and, 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 and she's doing the history of the therapeutic community. She just did the face, and I spent a lot of time with her. Most of the is really on synonym, but then they go on to daytop and other stuff. Well, the more I see that, the more I get involved with that. I said, you know, we really need, we really need a very, and I'll talk to David about it too, to put our own histor- a book on daytop and the history of daytop. Because Absolutely. we really got to put it in paper because we're going to be gone. And 
people got to carry on, and they got to know their roots of where they come from. You know, Daytop, as you know, uh, ran into hard times. They really they missed. They took the eye off the ball after I left and start forgetting. I don't know things. They made some mistakes, and now it's going to be merged with another organization, which is one of the organizations that we gave birth to, with Samaritan Village. It's going to be called Samaritan Daytop. They're still going to be there. They're still going to survive. They're still going to do wonderful things. Uh, I'm still going to be very involved helping them, and they asked me if I could be on one of their boards. So uh, it's going to happen, but that the history needs to be recorded, and you know, this what we're doing here is all part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Charlie Devlin, everybody, thanks again, Charlie, for joining us on Roach and Recovery, and uh, we'll hope to hear from you again. Okay. Enjoy, and I enjoyed it. Thank you. All your, all your listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show. All right. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thank no. you. All right. Why don't we take a uh, quick break and then come back and uh, take some calls. Sounds good. Let's do it. Uh, for those of you on hold, please hold, and we will get to you on the other side. Thank you so much. The sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. The Latino Commission Drug and Alcohol Treatment Services in South San Francisco was organized and incorporated in early 1991 and going on 22 years of providing services to our community. The Latino Commission, also known as TLC, would like to offer our services to those struggling with a substance use disorder. We have residential facilities for men, women, mothers and children, outpatient programs, transitional and SLE homes to assist and promote a successful recovery for individuals. We at the Latino Commission provide educational services on self-esteem, assertiveness, life management, coping skills, anger management, limits and boundaries, and other various subjects. The Latino Commission, restoring people holistically in an environment of love and understanding that represents our culture, improving quality of life. Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. The sound of your own wheels drive you crazy.
Okay, we're back. Uh, that was a great interview with Charlie Devlin, the former CEO of Daytop Village, um, <clears throat> who's still still very much involved. So, Mr. Producer, we're going to go out of line here. We're going to we're going to do our we're going to try and fit our recap of the interview in last, and we're going to go take some calls first. How about that? All right, good. So let's go to Kimberly. Looks like in San Jose. Kimberly, you're on with Roach and Recovery. Hi. Hi. How are you? Can you? I'm fine, thank you. I had some questions or I need advice or anyway, I'm 10 years in the program with no relapse. And I said vows with a man six years ago who's been in and out of this program since 1979. And recently he's just been relapsing to the depths of wherever you can go with uh, needles and acid methamphetamines and he leaves home for days at a time and I'm just uh, I know that I need to take care of myself I know that I I just can't help but want to help him with maybe some suggestions on recovery places I was thinking about an intervention I want to see a professional about that and if we put him up against the wall he has an above average IQ if we put him up against the wall I don't know what's going to happen, and he has these demons that he's dealing with, and that's the reason, that's the one area in the program that he can't really get is coping skills because of his demons that come, because of his childhood. So I wonder what you had to say about that. Just just for clarity for any of our listeners, when you say program, you're talking about in recovery. Yes, Alcoholics okay. Anonymous. Oh, okay. So you've been you you yourself have been in recovery for ten years, and your significant other has also been in and out of recovery. Yes. Okay. So <clears throat> this is not rocket science. You know that. Right. <laughs> right. And you also know that uh, you, as the other other party, the other person that's in the mix with this cannot make another person seek help. Right. And you also started out by saying, or you said during your, uh, your what you stated was that you know that you have to, during this time, make sure you take care of yourself. You don't want to be dragged down right. in, 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 into this uh, mess. Um, so the, the only thing you can really, really, truly do to support them is to be there with tough love, be there with Can support. You that? <laughs> what does Can tough define... love mean? We're living in the same home. I'm thinking that he needs to go to a recovery place. You want me to define tough love? Yes, please. Well, tough love means that you do what's in in the best interest of making sure that you don't get dragged into what the other person is doing. And if that means that they have to go elsewhere while they're in that life, then they have to go elsewhere. So you have you know, there has to be a line in the sand. Mm-hmm. You follow what I'm saying? It, there can't be, you know, that's why it's called tough. tough. It, 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 tough, it doesn't only mean tough to the other person. It means it's tough for you to even do what needs to be done. So it's tough love. It's tough for me, tough for you. So you got to give tough love. So you got to right. draw the line in the sand. I'm not going to accept certain things 
that's going to endanger me, my well-being, my home, etc., and be willing to stand by it. And the person has to know that you're dead serious. Any wiggle room, any, you know, any way that they see that you are going, you're, you're not firm in what you're saying is going to be opening to exploit that. That's why okay. it's called tough love. As bad as you, as bad as you want to do for them, what they actually have to do for themselves, you got to pull back and resist, and be firm. Does that does that mean not doing interventions or private interventions, things like that? No, you can try. You can arrange interventions. There's nothing wrong okay. with that. That that's something that you try. Absolutely. I think the problem this really way you started. Can look in the mirror and say, you know what? I you, you this way. You, sorry for talking over you. This way, you can look in the mirror and say, you know what? I've tried A. I've tried B. I've tried C. Right. I've, I've done what I could do from my end. And at a certain point, right. you're going to realize that if they haven't responded to A, B, or C, then that they then have to take the ball at some point and try and do it for themselves. Right. That's what I want the end result to be for me. And I didn't realize really that I was in this deep a crisis until this last time that he left, and I realized that I've been really enabling him. And I don't right. really know how to take and I need to save my house. I need to keep my dog and blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of just, um, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm, my head is muddy or something. So. Well, now's the time to get clear. Get focused on what you need to do for yourself and what you're what you're gonna demand from the other. And what okay. the clear boundaries and what the clear boundaries are. This way you, you, you save yourself. And that and what what saving clear yourself, boundaries? Excuse me? What are some clear boundaries? Well, let's start with the home. I don't want to see any of this happen in my home. Okay. Okay. So that's you start that that simple. Don't bring it into my home. Now, if they obey that, then the next step becomes: Are you going to seek help? Well, if the person acknowledges that they are, they do have an issue. That well, we've conquered the first hurdle, and so the next thing becomes: Okay, are you going to seek help for it? Now, if the response you get back is, "Well, I don't have a problem," then you know that the Everything stops. There's nothing else for you to say or do. The person is in denial that they have a problem. You just have to then from there protect you, yourself, your home, the things you care and love, and make sure those things do not get harmed. And that person has to be at arm's length until they come around and are willing to help themselves. Otherwise, you will get sucked in, dragged down, and consumed. And that's not what you want. As hard as it may be, especially when you're dealing with a loved one or or someone like a spouse, significant other. I don't know if he's really in denial, but he says that he needs help and he realizes that and that he's working the program differently with the same sponsor that he's had for 10 years. You hear that? You hear that noise? Yeah. You hear those sirens? Okay, that 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 means you you're going you're going you're going to a place you shouldn't be going. Oh, you, you can't what? say you don't you can't say you don't know if they're in denial. 
denial is not is not a complicated thing to, to source out. A person is either in denial or are aware of what they're doing and don't care. So Uh-oh, either okay. one of those two, either one of those two are irrelevant to what you do. You know what I'm saying? So um, if they're in denial, you still got to do what you got to do. If they're aware of it but not ready to change yet, you still got to do what you got to do. Follow me? Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, where does the uh, – I'm asking him about are you going to seek help. Where does that come in? Because if he's in denial or he doesn't care, what does that if matter? He's, if he's in denial, but you don't even have to ask that question. You just have to state what you what your position is where you stand, what your boundaries are. Okay. Okay? If the person then says, or if one of the interventions causes them to to recognize that they have a problem and they verbally acknowledge that to you, it then becomes, okay, what are you going to do? And you take it from... Okay. Okay. Have you ever... Do you you recommend a private intervention, meaning that there's no professional there, but a lot of his... I follow the rules of the intervention, which is write the letter or have his his, uh, actions have been affecting their life all these years? Whatever whatever you think it is, whatever you think is appropriate, because you you know the person best. So I mean, is that, has that ever been done? Do you have you heard of that? <laughs> of course, yes, yes, yes. Okay. People, okay. people get very creative with interventions, so it, it's okay. really all based on knowing the person that you're trying to intervene with and what what you think may work. So if you're saying, let me try and get some of the, the friends around that they, they'll they I'm may gonna make them an offer again. <laughs> we, we can always we can do that too, you know. We can do that, but you know, getting some friends around who that that, that they might respond to is is always a, a a good attempt. You know what I mean? Okay. So yeah, yeah. Whatever you think will work based on the person, since you know them best. Um, okay. Any other types of interventions that you know of that you can suggest? That's usually the first and the most effective. Because if a person doesn't respond to those who care about them, they're, they're not going to respond to a stranger on the street. They're not going to respond to someone in a in, a, in a, a, a private office. You know what I'm saying? Okay, okay. So in your opinion, that's a good place to start. Absolutely. For, I, I just, I really, really want to get away from helping him, and I don't want to enable him because he comes home after these runs and he says he's in the program. I'm supposed to Al-Anon and leave him alone and let him do his thing. And I can't do that anymore. I feel dangerous. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we don't. Gotta, gotta stop you. I gotta stop you from going there. It's okay. not complicated. People like to make it complicated and complex. It is not complicated. It's not complex. You just got to draw your line in the sand, define your boundaries, and stick to them. You can attempt okay. to intervene, and your 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 first attempt that you're planning, I think, is an excellent idea, and I want you to call me back on one of our shows and let me know how it panned out. Okay. What's your name? All right. My name is Orville. What's your Oh, hi, Orville. Is- Thank you very much. Hi. You're welcome. Okay. The name of the show Thanks is so Roach on Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Okay. That was a interesting call. All right. Let's go to 
Maurice, who's been holding a while. From, yes. From Oaktown. From Oaktown. Maurice, welcome yeah, to Roach on Recovery. right here. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Good. How can we help you? Well, I'm over here in a, in a treatment facility right now. You know, uh, I'm in uh, a program called Our Common Ground. It's located in Redwood City, and uh, I've been with the facility seven months now. Uh, during the seven months uh, of my treatment, I've been – my question is how do I maintain sobriety and consistency with my sobriety as I move on toward uh how what I say transitioning uh into back into society and into a transitional house, but I'm still struggling with a lot of the difficulties for as sobriety and how I'm maintaining sobriety and certain triggers. Um I I notice myself when I go on passes and when I do different things like this, I struggle with these different triggers. Uh, whether it's uh, music, whether it's uh, walking by places, uh, outside cafes, sidewalk cafes, and they're drinking and having fun and different things like this. And I'm trying to learn how to establish hobbies and different things like this. And I'm dealing with a lot of distractions. So while I'm in the treatment facility, I'm somewhat in a sheltered, closed-in environment. But I deal with the, 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 the phantoms and the different ghosts and the different things in my mind of how am I going to face those things once I'm out on my own. You know, the sobriety and different things like this is, is intact as well as me being abstinent. This is a co-ed facility, so, you know, it's a lot of different struggles that I deal with in, in, in a co-ed facility in terms of uh you know, personalities, attitudes, and different things like this. You know, I'm you know I'm in treatment, so I have an illness, a sickness, the disease of addiction, and there's others as well that have the same thing. So I'm trying to learn how to function through that and enter into society and have a healthy mindset. I just want to stay healthy. I feel strong and I feel healthy now, but to be able to make the transition and maintain that healthiness. I don't want it, you know, it's it's at a level now where I feel it's strong, but I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that. And I noticed that I still struggle with those fears. I have a lot of fears that I deal with right now. Um, Well, let let me ask you a question. Yes. Are you committed to uh, staying clean and sober? Yes, I am. Okay. If you've made that commitment, then you have accomplished 75% of the goal. Mm-hmm. The okay. rest of your fo- the rest of your your focus on uh, you know for as you transition out of your this current experience that you're in and you move back into society, all of your energy is focused on what you're going to be doing to accomplish whatever your next goals are going to be. Because I've committed to a lifestyle of clean and sober, so that's I don't have to spend any energy on questioning whether or not I'm going to stay clean, whether or not I'm going to use again, etc. Because that's all been settled within. So okay. that's why that was the first question I asked you, if you were committed. 
Not if you made a promise to yourself, if you made a commitment to yourself. And if the answer is yes, then all those things you mentioned after that, yes. all, of those, all of those things you spoke about mm-hmm. will, will ultimately solve themselves. Because regardless of whatever comes your way, whatever triggers you may experience, you know inside that none of them are going to cause you to make the decision to pick up and use. True? True. So That's true. That takes, that takes a lot of worry off your shoulders, doesn't it? Yes, it does. That, that takes a lot of worry off my shoulder, but then I, I would like to add to that I have another little the thing that I I deal with also. Um, okay, as I said before, you know, through the whole time I'm, you know, I, I'm in a sheltered environment thus far. Yes, I'm committed to my sobriety. Yes, sir, to what you're saying. But the the you know, and it's a button. I hate that word, but I must say that through the whole time I've been abstinent. I've been abstinent, and also I've been you know, I have um, not been involved with any relationships. I haven't been involved with anything beyond my relationship to individuals so what, what, around. What, what, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just in the interest of time. So what, what's your specific question or concern regarding relationships? How do, what, I mean, in terms of, I mean, how do I enter into a healthy relationship without, without having the fear of of being distracted, you know, am I am I safe in, in you know because I don't want to be strong in one area and be emotionally weak in the other. So how do I deal with that? In terms of who I choose to to, to see or who I choose to ultimately get involved with, you know, what, how do I deal with that? Well, you know. Uh, Maurice, they say um, relationships is uh, is up there in, in number one and two reasons why uh, people end up relapsing. Exactly. Right, 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 exactly. Okay. okay, and so I like to tweak that a little bit. It's not relationships; it's people's inability to deal with relationships. Okay, yeah, so, I, li- I like yeah, I like the way you you phrase that. Yeah. Okay, so. All you have to focus on is first you, okay? And right. if you're if, if you're correct and you're straight, and as you then move on in your life and 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 a relationship comes your way, okay, the same tools and things that you have incorporated into your life for your staying your you know your recovery, right? You, you utilize those same tools as you go into a relationship. So I'm almost certain that some of the tools were honesty, trust, things of that nature, yeah. right? Those exactly. Are some of the right. So you just practice those, practice those things, and you know your relationship will go as it's meant to be. Keep it okay. simple. Don't complicate it. All right. Okay. And by the, and by the way, one last thing. Stay out of your head. You sound like you're in your head a lot. Yeah. Yeah, All right? I am. Yeah. All right, Maurice. <laughs> thank, thank you. Uh, yeah. We want to hear back from you. Thank you. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Next up, uh, Jordan from Pacifica. Jordan, you're on Roach and Recovery. 
Jordan? Quote unquote Jordan, real problem. Jordan. Uh Jordan, sorry, Jordan. Yes. We we didn't we, we missed the first part of you, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Start on, start um, on. So uh my question I have for you is should I be concerned about prescription drugs when my quote unquote real problems are like illegal drugs such as heroin and crystal meth? You should be concerned about any drugs. Any drugs can be abused. Okay. Um legal you know, I deal with I deal with uh, other problems uh, other than the drug addiction disease, such as pain and anxiety, and I'm just concerned about whether going to a doctor and getting prescription drugs, uh, just the concern over um, my addiction, wanting to abuse such drugs. Did you say the term wanting to abuse them? Um, yeah, the wanting and needing, as in my as my drug-addicted mind uh, thinks. But I also have these other problems, such as pain and anxiety, that I do need to address the issue. I'm just concerned about, I mean, I am about my recovery, and I want to stay sober, but I feel like that would be a trigger for me or um, almost like a reservation to use again by going to the doctor and getting a prescription drug. uh, You have have answered your own question. Uh, you're, You're at a stage right now where you you are aware that it would not be in your best interest to do that. So you, you should look for alternative means to deal with your anxiety and other issues rather than um, prescription drugs until you have reached a stage in your recovery where you know you know to yourself, honestly, that you can responsibly utilize a medication um, legally prescribed medication for what, whatever the reason it's prescribed, that you would not abuse it. And you're okay, not, yes. it sounds like you're not there yet, and you recognize that, so you should look for alternative means. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. All right. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Jordan. All right. Hope to hear from you. Thank again. you. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Are we good on time, Mr. Producer? I believe we are good on time, yeah. We could probably squeeze another couple callers in there. I know we've had uh, Cheyenne, it looks like, from Modesto on hold for a little while, if you want to plug her in. Okay, let's uh, let's do that. Cheyenne from Modesto, you're on Roach and Recovery. Hi, my question about recovery is I have a hard time cutting ties with old people that I used to associate with. Um, how would I go about finally being able to cut off those ties? When you say, are these like casual friends or close friends? Um, these are long-term friends that I've had for about 10 years. But they're okay. still in their addiction, and I'm trying to remain in my recovery. Okay. So I was I'm have never been a fan of the... Um, advice in some circles that you cut people off. And the reason I'm not a fan of that is because you can be a role model for someone and you have no idea the effect, the positive effect you may have on them and then turning their life around. So that does not mean that you have to hang out with them, socialize with them, but you can still be civil, respectful, 
have dignity and understanding that you were once where they are now. And so if you happen to come upon them and and interact with them, it could be a a friendly, casual conversation. Um, But to shun them, I don't think is, I, I, I don't recommend people do that. I, there's an old unwritten philosophy remember where you came from remember, you heard of that yes I have Right. okay so a person you may encounter may be currently where you once were and, and you may be the person through what you're doing with your life because they may ask you hey Cheyenne I haven't seen you in a while what you been doing you say, you're not I'm turning my life around and doing positive things and they might still be in their addiction but hearing what you've done you know what I mean? And, and and seeing what you've done may spur them to make a change. Okay, so I guess what I'm asking is, like, the hard part for me would be to not um, hang out with them again in the future. So how do I, like, I don't want to break the ties, with, but how do I not hang out with them but still associate with them, kind of? Okay. Well, you. I know you're a lady, but I'm just going to use a, a generic term. Well, no, I can. I can think. I can flip it around. You got a woman up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what you have to do. You got to stand up and you know draw your boundaries. Okay. Be clear about your boundaries and re- and maintain them and respect them. That's what you okay. have to do. So if you run into somebody, one of your old friends or one of your old close friends, you have the ability, the respect for yourself to, you know, you can have a conversation with them and it won't dictate what you do. It won't affect what you're doing with your life. You follow me? Yeah, that's true. So I need to have a stand for myself. Yes. You need to set those boundaries. Exactly. Okay. All right. All right, thank you. You're very welcome. Bye. Bye bye. Okay, let's go. We have enough time to go to one more call, real quick. We absolutely do. Okay. All right. Uh, let's take Zach calling from Redwood City, hometown, local man. Zach. Yeah. How welcome you doing? Welcome to Merchant Recovery. Good. How hey, are you? thank you for having me. Good. Okay, so I can the question help you. I have, okay, so the question I have is, is 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 more of almost like a problem. Um, I've been in recovery a couple times, and uh, and when I go to meetings, I find that uh, I I'm more triggered by the time I leave the meeting, either being by uh, former people I associate with, uh, females I see, even the actual share itself, and I go through all the all the overall issues of like like almost like a fantasizing about using as I leave the meeting, and it seems like I'm almost getting more harm out of it than good. And I'm wondering if this is something that comes naturally and it's something I work through in recovery, um, or is this just something maybe I should seek a different form of recovery, um, maybe like attack therapy or behavioral modification, or should I just stick it through with the 12-step or a little bit of both? Or Well, the avenue you choose... Um doesn't matter if you're committed. Okay. So let's just get that one out the way. All right. So if you're, so if you're if if 12 steps are 
you know, the avenue you've chosen to enter into recovery and it's working for you, there's nothing, you know, that's the avenue you've chosen. So the avenue does not, you know, fail you per se. Um, It's whether or not you're committed to your ultimate goal. Okay. So basically just stay the course on whichever road I decide to take. Right, and you don't have to stay on one course. I mean, there's many people who go through different types of treatment and, 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 and still involve themselves in the 12 steps. You know what I yeah. mean? So it, it's not it's not one thing. It could be two things going on simultaneously. Um, so, But whatever you've chosen or whatever route you're on, if you're committed to the ultimate goal, stay on that route. And if you want to incorporate some other things in there to help you along that route, that's fine. But it's really about your commitment your ult- to, to the ultimate goal. Okay, because I basically feel like maybe I should even almost like start commuting to like meetings in other areas where it's not so much of a problem like running into old people at the meeting even though they're in recovery, but just basically get a whole new scene of 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 a different type of like because I'm going to area I'm, I'm pretty popular. In area. Zach, Zach, Zach. Yeah. You doing I, it I take it that was, that was the bad sign, okay, so. Yes, yes. You're doing it to yourself. It doesn't make a difference where you are, who you run into. It's all about your commitment. Okay. No one, out, no one outside of you can dictate what you do. You're in control of what you choose to do. So even if you're at a meeting locally, and Mr. Producer, this is a local boy we're talking to here. That's right, local <laughs> city. Uh, even if you had a meeting locally and you run into people around town that you've you know been around since you've been alive, um, you have to be man enough to 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 have boundaries and be able to respect them. And trust me, if you and if you're respectful and dignified in the way you present yourself to those who might still be in their addiction, they will respect you and look at you and say, "Wow, look at him." You know what I mean? Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, sir. Thanks Have for calling. Have a good day. Oh, All right, not, bye-bye. Not a problem. Thank you. Anytime. Uh, let's go up to, wow, Robbie calling from way, way, way up north, Redding, California. Robbie? Hello. Hello. Hi, hi. Welcome to Roach and Recovery. Thank you. <laughs> hi. Um, I have a very unique situation. I'm 60, 61 years old. Um, I'm in a recovery program, and I've been clean and sober for 75 days. Um, over While I was in the drug world, um, um the um i was instrumental in getting a 14 year old girl that the mexican mafia had taken um in their human trafficking ring to mexico and i was instrumental in getting her back for all for all these 30 years i I've been dealing with the retaliation and always relapsing at weak 
because of the stress. Um, I'm I rely on God to keep me safe now, and He does. But what do I? What do I do when I'm I'm afraid of weak moments that if there is a if there's a liquor cabinet in front of me or you know just hasty decisions in a um um well let me let me uh let me let me cut in for a second Robbie you listening yes i am Okay. Um, <clears throat> if I understand you correctly, you're concerned about, you know, based on the things you described, the history that you have, you're worried about, you know, um, I'm at home, I'm, I'm in my kitchen, and the liquor cabinet's there, and it's staring me in my face. What's going to stop me from grabbing that bottle? Well, yes, because... The retaliation follows me wherever I go, and they pay off people to. Um, um, so are you are you afraid for your safety? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You're out there. Okay, and well, I really, I have a very strong spiritual contact with God now, and um, He has been keeping me safe, but. Um, 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 they pay off people to destroy my car, uh, tear apart my home. Um, Robbie? Uh, yes? Robbie? But let me ask you this. Just in the interest of time, are these things, are are these the things that contribute to you wanting to, or feeling like wanting to use? Yes. Okay, yes. that's what I wanted to get to. Okay. And right. if I do use, I will lose my constant contact with God. Okay. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Do you want to use? No. I'm Okay. Are I you, I want com- God in you, my life so bad. I it brings Are you committed? Are you committed to, to my life? Are you committed to staying clean and sober? Yes. So then you have nothing to worry about. It's not complicated. Thank you. If you have if you've made the commitment inside internally, then you have nothing to worry about. Thank you. Thank you for the um edification. Thank You're you welcome. for that. Okay. We hope you call back. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, Mr. Producer, can we keep rolling, or do we want to take a quick break? Uh, on the we're at the bottom of the hour. We could take a quick break. I know we've got looks like we've got a caller on the line, but uh, I'm sure they'll continue to hold through the break. Uh, if you are listening and you are holding, we are going to take a quick break. Please uh, stay on hold, and we will definitely get to you on the other side. I tell you no, I'm giving 
CG can change your life in 15 minutes or less. Sounds familiar? Well, no, we don't sell car insurance, but we do change lives. If you, a family member or a friend, is struggling with substance abuse or addiction, give us a call. Toll free 866-325-6466. That's 866-325-6466. We will arrange a confidential assessment that will take 15 minutes or less. You can also visit our website, ocgworks.org, click on the service tab and select the online confidential screening link. OCG, where hope grows. The Children's Health Council in Palo Alto has been serving children, youth, and teens in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, as well as the greater San Francisco Bay Area, for over 60 years. The goal of the agency is to remove barriers to learning, regardless of language, location, learning style, or ability to pay. At CHC, we specialize in ADHD, learning differences, anxiety and depression, and autism through our center, two schools, and community clinic. No matter how big or small the issue is, just call us and we'll help you navigate your child's journey together. Visit our website at www.chconline.org or call us at area code 650-688-3625. Again, that's area code 650-688-3625. At CHC, we're here for you. And CHC, estamos aquí para usted. Okay, we're back. Roach on Recovery, 646-564-9909 is the number. <clears throat> Excuse my voice uh, if you want to call in. Um, if you uh, listen to the words, and he's, he's talking about don't let your uh, sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, you, you hear my uh, constant uh, refrain about keeping it simple. It is not complicated this recovery thing and people like to live in their heads and make it very complicated so we spend a lot of energy trying to drag them out of their heads and say look this is not rocket science just breaking it down to a really pure pragmatic level right exactly all right let's go back to the phones real quick um we're going to take uh sarah from sonora welcome to roton recovery hi thank you for having me i just have a quick question um so will I ever be strong enough to go back to old people, places, and things because I had two years and my family and where I'm from, I thought I could handle it and I didn't, and I relapsed. So 
I'm having a tough time with that because it's like I don't have very much family and I don't want to have to just cut them completely off. You, you you opened up by saying, will you ever be strong enough to go, go back, back with your to, family? No, go back it, to old people, places, and things. That Yeah, that's my family. Are, is your family a negative environment for you? Um, yeah. They haven't learned how to get out of, get out of. Whatever their addiction in. and their living style. Okay, but you don't ne- when, you don't ne- you don't necessarily live with them, but you because they're your family, you have you interact with them. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and where where are you at in terms of your sobriety? Are you, have have you made your commitment yet? Yes, I have. Well, if you've made your commitment, and that's true to yourself, then there is nothing on this planet that can dictate what you then do, no matter who you're with. And obviously, we can't pick and choose our families, okay? So um, it's really about getting to a point in your recovery where you're strong enough mentally, emotionally, spiritually to be in that environment with your family, understand and recognize what's going on, and not let it impact or dictate what you do. Recognizing what's going on in front of you. We got a number in philosophy called to be aware, to be alive, being aware of what's going on in front of you, seeing it, recognizing it, understanding what you're going through at that moment in time so that you can control what you do and how you respond to it. But you'll hear me repeat if you if you keep listening to the show, you'll hear me repeat over and over again that if you've made a commitment to your recovery, the only the only way you can do anything other than that is if you choose to. Yeah, and to pay attention to that before it's too late. Excuse me. And to pay attention to that, I am getting that the I don't know what you can call it, but the giving up and giving in feelings before I actually am there and in front of it doing it. Yeah, I mean by the time you're actually in a real in an active relapse, the 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 beginnings of the relapse started long before that. That's just the end result. Did you did you follow what do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when if you okay. find yourself using Okay, it didn't start that day. It started at some point before then, and that's just the end result. So build and it up, not, and I just and, was not paying attention. Uh, I I wouldn't really say not paying attention. I would I would reserve that only for people who are very very new in recovery and and really start you know trying to get on that recovery highway. But if you've been in recovery for a period of time, um. You don't get, these things don't come out of nowhere to surprise or shock you. You just choose to ignore them. Yeah. All right. We hear that deep sigh. (laughs) Because you're absolutely right. Yes. Well, we'll we'll leave you with uh, three words. 
You ready? Yes. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Yep. There okay. used to be another. There used to be another S attached to that, but I'm not going to use it on the air. <laughs> okay. I appreciate your time. All right, Sarah. Thank you very much for calling, and hope we hope you call again. Yes, I will. Have a good night. Okay. All right. Bye bye. So we used to say KISS after the rock group, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we don't want to insult any of our callers, so. Of course not, and it's because of that that I didn't play this soundbite, which got me thinking of the three words we could offer her. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! <laughs> it it would have been okay to drop, to drop that in there. Um you know, sometimes people are are it. It's not an accident if you relapse. You know what I mean? Um, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't, you know, just come around from a corner and, and grab you. You know, it's there's been signs long before uh, the actual pickup and the using starts. And it's whether or not a person chooses to recognize them or just chooses to ignore them. Because um, their mind is already made up and focused on something else. So it's a foregone conclusion. It's only a matter of time. And that's what we want to avoid. We want to avoid getting to that point. And so when we tell people to be aware, to be alive, it means many different things. But most importantly, always be aware of what you're feeling, what you're thinking, so you can control what you're doing. Okay? All right. Let's go to Faith from Oakland. Welcome to Roach on Recovery. Thank you for having me. Hi. How can I help you? Um, so I had a question. Um, if I feel like it's not working with someone who is supporting me in my recovery, like my therapist or my sponsor, um, should I work through my uncomfortable uncomfortability or should I find someone I feel more comfortable with? When it comes to what you just said, I'm a fan of comfort. You know, okay. Did you hear me? Yeah. I mean, you should. I mean, you should be comfortable with your sponsor. It shouldn't be have. You know, you know. You know, it should be a person you that that you know. There's a an unmeshing. You know what I mean? That you know, you 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 go together. Okay. There's a nice mix. There's a nice chemistry, so to speak. And if and if there isn't, if there's tension, if there's uh, you know, if if there's not a good chemistry, then it. To me, that's not something that you work to uh, get, you know, work through the uncomfortability because that's too important of a role to mm-hmm. have someone that you don't have good chemistry with. And you, and you, it doesn't take long to figure that out. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I okay. like, but how can I tell if I'm running or if it's just not working? Well. We are working on the machine that allows us to look into people's minds, but it has not been fully developed yet. So I don't know. <laughs> I cannot tell you that. Only you know that. Okay. So the question is, you have to be honest with yourself, and the question is, are you being honest with yourself if it's not working, okay, 
and whether or not you have the fortitude within you to say, you know what, it's not working, this chemistry doesn't feel right to me, I need to do something different. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you, know, you mentioned therapist and you also said sponsor, and those are two very important roles, right? Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, totally. So, so whoever is in those roles needs to be someone you have great chemistry with and great trust with and, and all that, all of that. And if that doesn't exist, then it's not going to work. Right. It's as simple as I can keep it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Right, thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, Mr. Producer, how are we on time? We're looking good. We, we've we got about 15 minutes left in the show. I think uh, so far so good. Some great calls, great questions, uh, deep questions, definitely put you in uh put you in a good position to have to share some knowledge and make sure that you uh you know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be on my game. Gotta be on my Gotta game. Gotta be kept you on your toes. Yep. Uh let's do now I d I didn't um my, my New York contingent just gotta help me out on this one. Any 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 Met fans out there I was a Yankee fan, but I did uh, listen to the Met games, and uh, back in the 70s and the 80s, the uh, announcers for the game, one of them, the color, the, play, the color commentator was Ralph Kiner and the play-by-play man. I do not remember his name, but he came up with the happy recap. So we were going to steal it from him uh, to recap our uh, interview with uh, Charlie. We're going to start that in a few, but if anyone has his name, um, the announcer's name. They used to call the Met games for years, the New York Met games. Um, send it to me. Uh, you can send it to our email. Send it to my email, ocgworkca at gmail dot com, um, or uh, send me a message um, on Facebook at uh, facebook dot com forward slash uh, ocgworkca. That's been bugging me, and I forgot to Google it. Uh, all right, let's take a. We got time uh, for a couple more calls before we move into our uh, close. So let's go with uh, Carlo from Daily City. You're on with Roach and Recovery, Carlo. Yes, thank you for having me. You're welcome. So um, I would I was just wondering because um, I'm dealing with a situation where about my brother. He just got out of jail and he's uh he's uh not on probation. So what do you do if one of your triggers are your family members? Yeah, that's a that's a big one because you can't you can't you can't choose your family. Yes. And, and so, and if your family's in the you know in the negative life, and you're trying to you know you're trying to get on the right path, and right. you know and you're and you're always around your family, you interact with your family. How does how do you keep yourself from getting dragged down into that? Okay. Well, I'm gonna go yeah. back to a familiar thing. Um, you got to hear me repeat this over and over again if you if you listen to this show, and that is where where are you? Where is your commitment? You know, if right. you're if you're committed, if you're committed to what you're doing and, and and being in recovery, then there's nothing that another person or anything external outside of you can do to change that. Mm-hmm. You follow me? And yes, so it I becomes do. a matter of. It just becomes a matter of game planning. Okay, I know I'm going to Thanksgiving Day dinner. My brother's going to be there. I know he's using him, et cetera. I don't want that to, you know, you know, impact me. Well, it's not going to dictate what you do. 
it's not going to impact you. It's really a matter of how do I handle being around him, okay, and dealing with that and so on and so forth. Well, it's just about keeping it simple, being right. aware of what you know what's going on with him, being aware of where you're at, and not allowing yourself to be pulled into anything. Yes. You know what I'm saying? You know what yes. you're doing, and you hold that close to you. Okay. Okay. It's not. It's not deep. It's not deep. Right. But if you start going through things as a result of you know whatever's going on at the Thanksgiving Day table, and it's bringing up stuff for you and so on and so forth, you know, you know that you gotta talk about it, pull somebody else aside, you know, even if even if you're talking about your brother. You know yes. what I'm saying? Pull somebody yeah, yeah. else's, you know, and just, you know, just vent. You just vent. Yes. And then get back to the table and grab a turkey leg. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Carlo? All right. Thank you. All right. All right. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you. All right. I know we're up against yeah, it. Yeah, we we're, we're up against it. We've got time for one more. If we can uh, keep it brief, we're going to have to keep it brief. Okay. All right. So we're going to. Uh, Catherine from calling from Brooklyn, U- Brooklyn, USA. That's from the Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? First, let me say, good. wow, you have a powerful show. I mean, it really is. I enjoy this show. But I wanted to, like, um, thank Charlie thank you, Devlin for being around so long. Um, question, maybe you can answer it. I thought sure. that the adolescent um, started because of um, a gang gang fighting in, um, I think, maybe Brooklyn, and one of the mothers called Monsignor to get her son out of jail, and Monsignor was like, what are we going to do with these um, gangs and stuff? And that's how the adolescent department started. Not the adolescent. That's that's the impetus for him uh, starting working with the adults. The mother that came to him was about her adult son. He was, oh, a, he, was okay. he was over. He was eighteen. He was eighteen, at least eighteen or over. He wasn't under eighteen. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I got it. Like I said, this is a powerful show. I didn't know that. I've been listening from the beginning. But I didn't mm-hmm. know that people call in and be, you know, like asking advice on recovery and stuff. So, um, are, are the people that call, like, say, can I um, answer a question from those people that be calling in? Meaning, if if someone calls in um, with a, with a question, can you, as another caller, offer some insight to them? Right. Sure. I, of course. Oh, okay, so for the lady that called in about her husband, or she was in recovery for two, ten years back and forth. Mm-hmm. No, ten years straight. She, from what I gathered, yeah, she's still in recovery. She's in recovery. Yes. Okay. And her, uh, and her husband is in and out of recovery. So right, right now he's in a relapse mode. Is what she okay, was saying. Okay, I just want to give her a little insight. My children put me into um, Entire Village. With one thing going on, if you relapse, you on your own. When I came home, I couldn't come in my own house alone. 
I had to wait outside until one of my daughters come home to let me in. So like you said, say what you mean and mean what you said. You have right. to set boundaries. And because I knew they were serious and they meant more than me than a bag of dope, I chose my children. So she needs to make a decision. But in order to make that decision, you got to first love yourself. Yep. Um, Absolutely. The guy that called in, he's, like, worried about going people, places, and things. I was on the bus, had to call back Parkville crying because I wanted to get off and be a part of those guys standing out there. When you first come home, you still want to be a part of that. You don't have no other life. You don't know nobody else. And this is why you make friends that's on your same level. Relationships is out completely. You're so busy trying to get your life back in order. You don't have time for a relationship. You need a job. You need housing. You need to be able to tell people, I need help. I had to let my daughter answer the door because I knew when one of my old friends knocked on the door that if I answered it, I would walk out of this. I had to let her know, I'm scared. Please go to the door and let her know, Mommy can't do it. Recovery is not a joke. And I, I, I hear this today on your show. People are really struggling with this. So yeah. thank God for your show and the God is always, you always ask for time. Thank God for you all in this show. It's really needed. Thank you. Finish. That's it. I'm going. All right. Good. Uh, and, and I hope you keep listening. And uh, I definitely am. I definitely am. Right. I enjoy it. And, and 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 we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be. Well, we're gonna do something. I'm gonna I'm gonna take you off air, but I want you to stay on and make sure you listen to our close. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, Catherine. All right. Okay, I will. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. You're very welcome. Okay. All right. So we're running short on time. So we're going to have to do our interview recap uh, at the beginning of our next show. That's uh, what we'll do. Charlie that one recap. So uh, this is our Thanksgiving Thanksgiving week. So I want to play a special song. And uh, us uh, old schoolers will know this song well, but it's a, it's a perfect song, in my opinion, for Thanksgiving. My producer is shaking his head vigorously. No, no, no. But I demand that it be played. So let's let's roll that and then we're going to our uh clothes. Go. Beautiful. <clears throat>
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Your whole song. But one more day